0: I've asked for the service early tonight, so if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know it usually doesn't start this soon. Hopefully that's good news. The bad news is it's not going to end any sooner. <laughs> I always call these moments a message or a sermon, but I'm admitting to you tonight that this is an epistle. So settle, settle in, settle in. I want to do a lot of things tonight. It's not just really one message. That's why I joke that it's an epistle. I'm going to cover lots of different topics tonight. I want to open, because this is the wrap-up of this series, The Moral Dilemma, and I just want to double down on why we did this series. And maybe even doing that, it's going to make some of you uncomfortable, but I I believe that this series is important for us for where we're headed together as a church. and Then I'm gonna share some things tonight about my life personally, some things that I feel like that God is showing me, some things that I need to work on, I need to do better of as a person. So I'm I'm gonna share those with you tonight. That's not an easy thing for me to do and I'm gonna talk about that. And then then I'm gonna shift gears and I wanna teach on something that I believe that God showed me that's gonna be critical and key to our journey moving forward as a church as we strive together for oneness and unity. And then I want to spend some time building on the message that Sharon brought last week and just how that's convicted my heart in a personal way. Um, and then I'm going to risk some more vulnerability. And then I'm going to close around eight o'clock with. Ha! Uh... <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm not ending until I'm done. I'm just letting you know. And then I want to just close with some some thoughts that I believe are going to be vital as we journey forward together. And at the end, it's just going to be an invitation for you to continue on this fight with us for unity. It's a rare thing. Most churches don't reach for it, but we are. And I believe this is a time to press in and not a time to pull back. So Father, I thank you I believe that this is one of those moments for us as a church where you're you're asking us to make a decision. We we see moments like this in Scripture, in the Old Testament, where Joshua said, "Choose this day, whom you shall serve." Father, I know that you're asking us to make some choices tonight. Jesus, I think about when you had a crowd full of people and you began to talk with them about drinking your blood and eating your body, it, it, it says in the Gospels that that was the moment where scores of people turned away. Father, I pray that we would not turn away. We would not turn away from the invitation that you are extending to us Come on, in Jesus' name, and everybody said together, Amen. When the presidential debates started, I got a text from a good friend of mine, Kevin Swan, who preached here recently. He's the president and co founder of the Virginia Unity Project, which I am a proud member of. And, uh, and he sent me a text that night as we were at home, and uh, we were all, most of us, all right, all of us were tuning in, watching knowing that this election was going to be divisive in the Christian community. And, uh, and he sent me a text. He said, brother, I'm praying for you. And uh, I said, thank you, because I'll take all the prayers I can get always, in any circumstance and situation. And, you know, a couple emojis, laughing, sharing. And he said, no, I'm praying for you. He said, because I know that no matter what the outcome of this election is, half of your church is going to be upset, and half of your church is going to feel victorious. And he said, No, I mean, no matter what the outcome is, half of your church, no matter which way the election is going to go. He said, For, for, for my church and for many of our churches, no, no matter what the outcome is, we're, we're all going to find ourselves and our churches in the same place. He said, But not you, Fred, not what you all are building there at the City Life Church. It was powerful. He's a good brother and a dear friend. This book, Compassion and Conviction, which I'm going to read from some tonight, is an important book for me. As I was driving cross-country with my brother recently, I was texting some out of this and posting some quotes. I like this book because it does not pick a side. I like books that don't pick a side. I like books that create a side and invite us to that place. And this book has convicted my heart in some deep ways. And one of them is this. It's intellectually lazy, to agree with the same political party on every single issue. That's a clear indication that we've been indoctrinated, which should never be an option for Christians. It doesn't say aligned. It's wrong to align because all of us are going to align with something. But it's saying if you agree with everything, be careful. My intention with this series has been to challenge us all, myself included, myself included, that whatever political party we lean towards, and we all lean a certain way, I lean, we all lean, it does not mirror Christianity. It is not a mirror. You, you might feel yours mirrors Christianity more than others, but there's the rub, people. That's the rub. And that's the conflict, because Christians on both sides equally feel the same way, hence the series. There should be a moral dilemma for all of us, regardless of which way we lean, And my challenge to you in this series has been, and I'm giving it to you again tonight, make room for one another's minds while staying relationally connected to one another's hearts. Make room for one another's minds while staying relationally connected to one another's hearts. It's interesting, right? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like unto it, which means that there was a mind relationship we have with each other, just like it is with the Father. And when that one's not together, I think that's one of the reasons why that list is given to us. It's given to us for the Father because we're supposed to love Him completely, and it's given to us with one another because He knows that not all of them are going to be connected all the time, but at least some to keep us tethered together in relationship. So let me share with you a few things about what God has been doing in my life this week. I want to talk to you about vulnerability. Now don't get nervous I'm not setting you up for some big confession of some huge moral failing. I know that sometimes when pastors start talking about vulnerability, you get more nervous than we do. (laughs) I've always thought of myself as being vulnerable, but I'm not. I've described myself as being a pastor who's vulnerable in the pulpit, but I'm not. I'm going to give you a couple of definitions that are going to appear on the screen. I tweaked the end of this definition. My definition just talked about risk, but I've changed it to say risk being hurt because when I was talking with Steve Ruggiero this week, he was telling me about a lady. I don't know a lot about her, but I look forward to digging into her material by the name of Brene Brown, B-R-E-N-E, Brene Brown. Anybody know Brene Brown? So apparently I'm late to the party there, but she has a lot that she talks about with vulnerability, and she talks about this idea of risk being hurt. That's, that's where it turns. And what I've realized this week about myself is that I'm not vulnerable, I'm just transparent. Now transparency is good, but it's not good enough. Transparency is being open about personal. These are my definitions about. about, I'm just describing myself. Being open about personal things that don't make me feel uncomfortable to share. It's sharing things that I don't risk that that I don't think risk me being hurt. So I can share, and I have shared deeply personal things from this pulpit. But I've shared them because I've it. It's not made me uncomfortable. Vulnerability is something very different being open about personal things that make me feel uncomfortable to share. Sharing things that I th- think do risk me being hurt. It's hard for pastors to be vulnerable. And one of the reasons why it's hard for pastors to be vulnerable is because we're the person that people come to for, for their own vulnerability. This is, this, is, this is part of our, our calling and, and, and one of the contributions that clergy makes to society, and it's important. There needs to be people, trusted people that others can come to and, and share their shame, their secrets, things that they would never tell another person, because confession is important for us. That's why in James it says that we confess our faults one to another and pray one for another that we might be healed. And that confession has to start somewhere, and oftentimes it starts with clergy. It starts with pastors. I've been in pastoral ministry for over 20 years, and I can tell you almost every single time. Are there exceptions? Sure, but not very many. Then when I sit in my office and someone shares something that's deeply personal, a failure, something that's hard for them, they, they, they know they're taking a risk by putting it in play, almost every single time, every person, no matter what their ethnicity is, no matter what their age is, no matter what generation they're from, no matter their socioeconomic class, and I don't even think they always know that they're doing it, but they all do the same thing. They stop, and they stare. And I know what they're doing. They're looking at this face, and they want to know, are you going to step away from me, are you going to step towards me in this moment? Now, I've learned to wait for it because I know it's coming. And every single time, I do the same thing. I don't say anything. Now, I know that's hard for you to believe. But I don't say anything. The first thing that I do is I lean in. I use my physical body to posture towards them. Before I say it, I want them to see it. I'm stepping towards you. And I don't look away. No, No matter what they share, no matter how, I do not look away. I do not look away. I look them right in the eye. And if they look away, when they come back, I'm waiting for them. And then at that point, whatever I feel like that God has put in my heart for them, that's, that's, that's when I give it. That's when I share it. Because what they want to know is, can I trust this person, not just with my secret, but can I trust them with my journey of healing? Because that's where the risk really starts. Now, this is why it's hard for Pastors. Not looking for your pity tonight. I'm just sharing with you what our journey is like in this life. It's hard for us to be vulnerable as pastors because our experience is when it's our turn to ask for forgiveness, when it's our turn to say we're sorry, when it's our turn to talk about our faults, not our transparency, but our vulnerability. Our experience is that people have a tendency to step away. And to not step for us. And sometimes they step all the way out. And oftentimes it's the people that you've been spending a lot of your time stepping towards them. I, again, I'm not looking for your pity tonight. I'm just sharing. This is, this is part of my struggle. So this is what Jesus said to me this week. He said, you got to stop ministering out of your hurt. And start ministering out of your healing. Because all of us have hurt, but all of us have a measure of healing too. And we will never fully help the people that come to us with their healing unless we minister to them out of ours. And we have to set our hurt aside. So, my commitment to you is I'm going to work harder to be better at being vulnerable. And I'm going to do it tonight. I'm going to do it tonight. All right, before I get there, though. uh, My God, my God. No, that's my actual point. My God, my God. But it's fitting that that comes next, isn't it? I was in here early, early, early Tuesday morning. God showed me some things about who we are as a church, not just who, who I am, right? I've been sharing about that, and I'm going to share more about that, but he, sh- he showed me some things about <clears throat> who we are as a church. There's a slide that's going to come up, and I'm going to show you. It's a diagram, these three phrases that I've been meditating on. My God, my God, come and see, and go and tell. My God, my God, come and see, go and tell. There's some verses up there I'm going to. Skip over those, you can read them if you want to, but Matthew 27, we understand, right, my God, my God, this is the moment where Jesus is dying on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Come and see, Luke 24, when the ladies come back and finding the tomb empty and telling the other disciples to come and see what they have found, and then in Acts 1-8, right, this is Jesus saying, go and tell the world, go and tell the world. Now I call these last two hallelujah moments. The first one I call a heck no moment. Because in life, we love us some hallelujah. But what we tend to forget, what I have forgotten as of recent, is that the only way you can get to a hallelujah is through a heck no. Because there would not have been any come and see and no go and tell if there had not been a my God, my God. and if you'll notice that Jesus is a part of all three of these stories he is the one dying he is the one resurrecting and he is the one commissioning the saints to tell the world i remember years ago when we first moved here in 2007 to be a part of this church and to lead it forward that the, the church was just about a year and a half old, and there were many parts of the church. There's so much of, of us that's so well-defined here, and we, we had none of that. And, and, and I remember that we, were as a church, we are just trying to find our identity in every ministry. And I remember when the worship ministry was one of them, we were like, what, what, what's going to identify us as a, as a worship ministry? Because there's all different kinds of focuses that you can have in a worship experience, And I was praying and one day I felt like God gave me this phrase, make me want to dance. Make me want to dance. And I remember meeting with Chandler and Celeste who are still part of the church and some other people that were helping to drive the worship ministry in those days. And I remember sharing this story with them. I know they had a blank look on their face because that's a tall order because they knew that I can't dance a lick But we all knew what God was saying to us. Worship here is going to be about a hallelujah. It's going to be about a celebration. It wasn't too long after that, that Psalm 27, 13 became a part of our church. I would have lost heart if I had not believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Heaven now, heaven forever became our message here because what we wanted the world to know is that part of being a devoted follower of Christ is you should expect some hallelujah. Yes, there's hard shit, but there's hallelujah. We wanted to be a place where people could come and celebrate even in their sorrow. They could find a celebration. But I know that over the last few years what I've gotten away from is forgetting that that you just can't bypass the heck no for the hallelujah. You can have a hooray without a heck no. But we don't want hoorays. We don't want it to be superficial emotion. We we want the hallelujah to come from the seat of our soul. We're we're going to read a verse later on tonight. In the Hebrew, they talked about your bows for the word for passion. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Because they believe that That was a prophetic metaphor for the seat of your soul. And that the greatest feeling comes from there. That's a hallelujah. And we cannot get there without journeying through the heck no. Galatians 2.20 For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of Man who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Paul saying to you and I, if we're going to experience the hallelujahs of this life, we have to also identify with his dying. If we're going to know the power of the resurrection, we've got to spend some time in moments of my God, my God. Now, if you're married, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. If you've made a vow of devotion to Christ, you know what I'm talking about because some things had to die in us. If you have a family or if you've ever spent 13 seconds in a church, you know what I'm talking about. There's a reason why there is a valley of the shadow of death in Psalm 23. Because it's part of the journey. And we don't get to the table with our enemies and our heads being anointed with oil until after the valley of the shadow. Not before. And it's Jesus that leads us into it. And out of it, dying to self. Genesis 32, 22 to 31, as I was in here praying early on Tuesday morning this week, felt like the Holy Spirit was just pointing me to that story. Now, I've read on that story. I have preached and taught on that story. But I saw something in the story that I've never seen before. Maybe you've heard it taught. Maybe you've seen it. I don't know. But it was new for me. Now, this is the story where Jacob is coming back from and Aram, and he's on his way to be reunited with his brother who wants to kill him. And he's out by himself, and he has an encounter with an angel. Now, many people believe, and I'm in this camp, that it wasn't just an angel like there are angelic visitations in the Bible, but this was actually a pre-incarnate visitation of Jesus himself. And that's who Jacob wrestled with. And as they wrestled throughout the whole night, eventually the angel, who I'm going to refer to as Jesus, because Jacob would not give up, he has to touch his hip and dislocates it so that he'll stop wrestling with God. And this week I I saw something I've not seen before, is that I believe that that was a prophetic picture given to us For how Jesus would one day wrestle with his own humanity in the Garden of Gethsemane so salvation could come to the world. And we know Jesus is both fully God and fully man. This is Orthodox Christianity. The Incarnation. Hebrews 4, 15 reads this way. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same things that we do, yet he did not sin. The only reason this verse has power is because of the rest of the New Testament. We understand that Jesus took on humanity when he was born into this world. He was fully God, yes, but he was also fully man. And I believe that that story, it's there for many reasons. But one of them is because Jesus wanted us to see what he would have to do to overcome his humanity to yield to the will of the Father. See, the wrestling of Genesis 32, its partner text is Matthew 26, which is in the Garden of Gethsemane. There are no verses in the Bible that tell us that Jesus wrestled in death to be resurrected. None. Because that was effortless for him. Because his humanity had ceased to exist. But in the garden, it tells us that he struggled. That he sweat droplets of blood that he was under so much stress. In the wounding in Genesis 32 where he touched Jacob's hip, the the partner text for that is Matthew 27. It's the crucifixion because his body... Was broken for us. Not too long ago, I was sitting downstairs. I was up early one morning. I was feeling sorry for myself, having a little pity party. You ever had one of those? And I literally said to God, "This, this is too hard. This is too hard. This work of unity." Making room, trying to get people to make room, me making room. I'm in the mess of it. It's too hard. I said, I don't know if I can do it. I kept waiting for the Holy Spirit to say something, and he was silent, as he often is, for a reason. So I opened up my Bible app that I use for my reading plan and found myself in Hebrews 11. That was the reading for the day. So I'm reading through, reading through, reading through, reading through, and right when I get to the second half of verse 30, I'm going to read 35 to 38 in just a minute, but I want you to to hear it after what I heard from him. I kid you not, I was halfway through reading that verse, and the Holy Spirit whispers to me, you don't know what heart is. 38B, but others were tortured, refusing to turn from God in order to be set free. They placed their hope in a better place, After the resurrection, some were jeered at. Their backs were cut open with whips. Others were chained in prison. Some died by stoning. Some were sawed in half. This is our Bible verse for the kids in the nursery tonight. It says, Others were killed with the sword. Some went about wearing skins of sheep and goats, destitute, oppressed, and mistreated they were too good for this world. Whew. Wandering over deserts deserts and mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. I don't know about you, but I've never had to hide in the hole in the ground because of my faith in Christ. There are people around this world that's still part of their every day. It's not part of mine. The Holy Spirit's afraid. afraid. You, you don't even know what heart is. You don't even know what heart is. I have a dream for this church, and I know many of you share it with me. I prayed about it in pre-service in our circle time. It's out of John 17. You've heard me say it so many times, where Jesus prayed that we would be one, as He and the Father and the Holy Spirit are one. It's one of the only times in the Bible where we recognize that we have an opportunity to answer His prayer. We're always looking for Him to answer ours, but in this one moment, He looks to you and me, and He says... Will you answer my prayer? In his wrestling with Jacob in the Old Testament and in Gethsemane, he's trying to show us something about the human experience. You have to be willing to wrestle with yourself. You got to let the Jesus in you and the Jacob in you go at it. And you got to pick a side. You've got to pick a side. I've got to pick a side. And I know for me far too often I'm wrestling with Jacob instead of Jesus because I'm just like you. I don't like to die to myself. As I was thinking and praying on these things as I was there in my chair downstairs that morning, I felt like more was going to come, but it didn't. It didn't come to later this week. But when it did, I I knew what the Holy Spirit was talking about. I have it in quotes on the slide because I, I, I feel like this came from him. So the oneness we share comes from our shared divinity. All three of us, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit saying to me, Are perfect. But none of you are. And that's why Jesus prayed for your oneness. Because we all know that you will never attain it without our help to overcome your humanity. Dying to self is hard. And when he said that, I knew what he was saying to me. He was saying to me, Fred, oneness, the work of oneness actually is not hard. What's hard is dying to self. And, it, and if we would just stop aligning with Jacob and start aligning with Jesus and start wrestling against ourselves and be willing to die to self, that what, I think what we would find is that we would just Slip right into the oneness that Jesus wants us to find. Which is why Sharon's message last week challenged me in such a deep and profound way. When this slide she put up on the screen last week, I took a picture of it. I couldn't couldn't get a picture of it quick enough. Not just because I wanted to post it, because I wanted to never forget it. Pride tries to figure out how many people I can keep out of God's family. The gospel tries to figure out how many people I can get in. I didn't like that because it was insightful or clever or all the other things that right, oftentimes we're looking for when someone's teaching. I liked it because it wounded me in a good way. I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we forget that the Bible is a sword, a double-edged sword, the Bible says of itself, penetrating to dividing soul and spirit and joint and marrow, judging the attitudes of the heart, the Bible says. And sometimes it just pierces our soul. And that pierced my soul last week. One of the reasons why I love to sit under Sharon's teaching and why she's taught so often here at this church is because every time she teaches, it makes me hungry to learn more about what she teaches about. That's the mark of an anointed Bible teacher. Thank you, Sharon. And she had us digging around deep in Romans 8 last week. And I've been digging around in it all this week myself. It is an incredible text in Scripture. I'm going to read 1 and 2, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to read 31 to 35. But you should make a note to yourself and go read it, because when she took the, the, the 3 to 30 out and, and pulled 1 and 2 and 31 to 35 together, there was just a, you, you could see, right, right, the Holy Spirit was, was saying, make sure you realize that these two things are connected. But 1 and 2 say this so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, and because you belong to him, the power of life of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. Right? That's Paul saying to us, stop siding with Jacob. Stop it. Be on the winning side, which is Jesus. I've never done a study of that word condemnation before. Never done a deep dive into it, but I did this week, and I was surprised to find that it actually only appears in the New Testament just three times. Just three times in the original Greek. And they're all right here in the book of Romans. This word, condemnation of this Greek, is katakrima. Katakrima. And it literally means a damnatory sentence. That's what it means. A damnatory sentence. Now, I don't know about you, but I've, I've been in court before, not just as a witness, And if you're there presenting your side, you know what? Somebody else is there presenting another side, oftentimes a police officer. And when they're telling the story of the things that you did wrong, that's not katakrima. There's other words in the Bible for that, for accusing and criticizing. Those are different words. That's not what this word is. This word is damnatory judgment. See, what this word means in a a court illustration is that that after everyone's told their side, the judge makes a judgment. And once that judgment is made, your case is over. Now, I get there's appeals and you can go to other judges, but in each one of those processes, somebody is going to make a ruling about you. And at some point, the ruling's final. That's katechremers. A damnatory sentence. Why do we know that? Because Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, uses this word with great intention in chapter 5 because he knows he's coming back to it. 5.16. And the result of God's gracious gift is very different from the result of one man's sin. For Adam's sin led to katakrima, condemnation. But God's free gift leads to our being made right with God. God even though we are guilty of many sins. 5.18. Yes, Adam, Adam's one sin brings condemnation, katakrima, for everyone. But Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and a new life for everyone. See, he was laying the foundation in five for what he wanted us to understand in eight, which is what Sharon was challenging us last week is that none of us are ever free to write people off because it's not our place to give the damnatory sentence. Not over ourselves or anyone else. Her warning to us last week was so profound because from the moment we allow ill feelings to grow in our hearts towards others, they become the seeds of condemnation. Oh, and i got a garden in me, people. A garden in me, posturing us in a place of writing people off. Pride tries to figure out how many people I can keep out of God's family. The gospel tries to figure out how many people I can get in. We know When Paul talked about condemnation, he was not talking about correction because Paul wrote a lot of other letters in the New Testament inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in those letters, he criticizes, makes discerning judgment. He corrects, complains, disciplines, often with a harsh tone and a harsh language. Sometimes he does it publicly, right? Have you read the Bible? There are times where he actually names the people that he has a problem with and he wants the letter read before the whole church. Lord, have mercy. But you know what we know about Paul? Whenever he criticized or made discerning judgment or corrected people or disciplined people or, or even brought them into the public's eye, it was always for the purpose of bringing people to repentance. Every time. And, and... To protect the body. To protect the body. Because he understands that sin that is not addressed becomes a temptation for everyone else. Paul's heart was always for the person to come to repentance and for the body of Christ to be protected. Always. Because otherwise, it quickly becomes condemnation. There is a difference between correction and condemnation, which is why in Hebrews 10.24, we're given this incredible verse that says, provoke one another to love and good works. Provoke one another to love and good works. But don't ever condemn, because that's not our place. So I've got some confessing that I'm going to do tonight about some condemnation in my own heart as of recent. And as I was preparing for this part of the epistle, I found myself in Philippians 2, 1 through 4, Philippians 2, 1-4, but I'm going to read out of the King James Bible. One of the reasons why we study many different translations and work from different translations when we preach and teach is because we recognize that it's the original text that's divinely inspired. And some translations get the text better than others. And a lot of modern translations, which I love, New Living Translation is almost the the translation I use exclusively, sometimes inserts to help clarify, but sometimes their clarity narrows the text instead of broadening it. I'm I'm going to explain that in a minute. This is in Philippians 2, 1 through 4. This is where bowels, the word bowels is used for affection. If there, if there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies. We're like, well, really? Really? Because th- this word bowels, right? The seat of our soul, where the deepest, most sincere f- affection comes from, mercies, It says, "...fulfill ye me my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, letting nothing be done through strife and vainglory, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves." Verse 4, "...look not every man on his own things, but every man also to the things of others." In the Greek, this verse in verse 4 is one of the most generic phrases that you're going to find. Some translations insert needs, some translations insert interests, The King James got it best because everybody's struggling for what does this mean? Because in in an effort to bring clarity, again, there's a tendency to narrow, but I don't think that's what this was about. When, when When you look at the original language, Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, was trying to give the broadest picture possible of people. In the Greek, it's literally just each one. That's all it says. Each one make room for each one. Because I think the Holy Spirit was saying people are complicated. And you've got to be willing to put others ahead of yourself. Not just the parts of them that you like, not just the parts of them that you agree with. If you're going to stay connected relationally of the heart, you've got to be willing to make room for one another's minds. See, it's interesting, it's a little bit of a play on words. Paul's not saying when he says, be of one mind, think the same. He's saying, be of one mind in the sense that you're willing to make room for the minds of other people. Be of one when it comes to this idea, stay connected to the heart. So I'm going to share some things. Some of these are going to make you terribly uncomfortable. Welcome to the City Life Church. I'm going to ask I'm going to ask you to do me a favor for the next several minutes. I'm going to ask that you not say amen, that you not say that's good, that you not clap or laugh or I'm just going to ask you to be quiet. Because what I don't want this moment, which is a personal moment for me, to be used in any way to bring division to this church. This moment is just me talking to you as Fred. Not your pastor. At the leader of this church, you might say, Well, that's not fair. And I would say, Well, I've got the microphone. <laughs> this is just me, person to person, sharing with you my struggle. And there's going to be a confession that comes at the each of these. So I hope you see that. I'm not talking to you about who you voted for, who you should have voted for, who I voted for. That's, that's not what this moment is about. I'm, I'm not convinced that Trump is a Christian. I'm not. I'm not convinced that President Trump is a Christian. This is my journey. This is, I'm just talking to you about my struggle. For, for me, I, I want to see some steps. I want to see some steps. I, I want to see that there's, there's some life evidence that reflects a profession of faith. As a devoted follower of Christ, not as a pastor, as a devoted follower of Christ, when someone professes, professes faith in Christ, I get excited but at some point, verses like Matthew 3.8 begin to stir in my heart, where John the Baptist said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Sometimes I get to Titus 1.16, where Paul said, people claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. And these next verses, I, I, I kid you not, what, I have a routine, right? Imagine that. All right, if I'm going to ask you to not laugh, I can't make jokes, right? Sorry. I wasn't going to read, the, I, I, I've been vacillating. Should I read these verses? Should I not read these verses? I, I kid you not, when I got to my chair this morning and opened up my Bible app, you know what chapter it was? James chapter 3. It's like, okay, Lord, I hear you. I'm going all the way in. Not just transparent today, vulnerable. Maybe you've never heard these verses before, but just, I just want you to hear them tonight afresh. Talking of the tongue, it says sometimes it praises our Lord and Father and sometimes it curses those who have been made in the image of God. And so blessing and cursing come pouring out of the same mouth. Surely, my brothers and sisters, this is not right. Does a spring of water bubble out with both fresh water and bitter water? Does a fig tree produce olives or a grapevine produce figs? No, you cannot draw fresh water from a salty spring. Verse 13, if you are wise and understand God's ways, prove it by living an honorable life, doing good works with the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you are bitterly jealous and there is self-ambition in your heart, don't cover up the truth with boasting and lying. For jealousy, and listen to what James says here about these character traits or character flaws. Jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Listen to what he says. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. It uses the word demonic. Now I struggle because I've seen this president mock people and make fun of the way that they look, especially women. It's been hard for me. It's been hard for me. I've heard people say, well, it's just his personality, but that's been hard for me. Because i got a daughter. One day she's going to get married in about 40 years. <laughs> and if someone professes to be a Christian but acts the way that our president has acted and someone says to me, lighten up, Fred, that's just their personality, I'm going to have words with that person. This is just my observation, not telling you what you should believe. I have a hard time reconciling narcissism and what I believe to be racism with genuine Christian faith. Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. These verses have resonated with me so deeply over these last four years. I've taught out of this, these verses so many times. This is the Holy Spirit said to me, Fred, at some point you've got to stop telling me what to believe and start believing what I've told you to believe. There are six things that the Lord hates. The poetry here in Proverbs is clear. It is a list, and the seventh thing is the thing that is worse than anything else on the list. Every every biblical scholar agrees on this idea of this list and the seventh thing. That's why it says, these six things the Lord hates. No, 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 seven things he dissests. It's saying the seventh is worse than anything else in the list. Haughty eyes, pride, a lying tongue. Number three, hands that shed innocent blood. Hands that shed innocent blood. I'm putting abortion right there. A heart that plots evil, feet that race to do wrong, a false witness who pours out lies, now, I don't know about you, but you get to the next one you go, what on earth could be worse than all of those? And it says, a person who sows discord in a family. Really? How, how, how can that be? Because I'm just telling you, I'm not even sure that one makes it on my list of the most detestable things in this world. But God says it's the worst one of all to him. And that word for family isn't just limited to Mom and dad, and brother and sister. King James, I think, gets it better. It says the brethren, which is really any group of people that align themselves together in loyalty, which sounds to me also like a nation. So, this is my confession tonight. I have some forgiveness to ask of you tonight that you would forgive me as a person, but also your pastor, for my acts and feelings of condemnation that I have had towards our president, because they are wrong. They are wrong. And I realize now that the time that I've spent in condemnation could have been better spent bringing a loving biblical criticism of his conduct and more frequently calling us as a church, what I have, which I have not done, to a place of prayer on his behalf. And I failed you in that way. Praying for a heart of change, for him to yield to Christ more fully, because I have a condemnation in my heart towards him and I shouldn't. Because it's not my job to bring the damnatory sentence It's my job to hope and believe against anything that I think could be impossible, to believe that change can come. And for that, I ask you to forgive me. I do believe that Biden is a Christian. I do. For me, I've always taught from the day one that I've come here, Catholicism and Protestantism are both forms of Christianity. I believe that. You might say, well, I know some Catholics that aren't Christians. I would say, I know some Protestants that aren't either. He's probably been to church more than the the rest of us. You might say, well, that doesn't make you a Christian, but as a pastor, I would say it's a great start because if you're going to be a fan of Jesus, you better be a fan of his bride. I believe him to be a man of compassion and empathy and sincerity. But I struggle with Biden just as much as I struggle with Trump. I do. I do. I've struggled with them equally, President-elect Biden and President Trump. It's difficult for me to reconcile his support of abortion laws and support of LGBTQ lifestyles and support of what I believe to be the dismantling of the biblical nuclear family. It's been hard for me to reconcile his profession of faith with a lack of support for Israel, who I believe the Bible clearly says has a specific place in God's plan for this world, especially the end of it. I have a hard time reconciling his profession of faith with support of what I believe to be is an inevitable dismantling of religious freedom because I believe that's the course that we're on as a nation. And it troubles me. It's been difficult for me to reconcile those positions with genuine Christian faith. So I have forgiveness to ask of you tonight, again, that you would forgive me of my acts of condemnation toward our president-elect because I realize now The time I spent in condemnation could have been better spent bringing a loving biblical criticism of his policies and yes, sometimes his character and behavior and more frequently calling us to a place of prayer on his behalf for a heart change to yield to Christ more fully. You've got to make a decision tonight. You're going to lean in or are you going to step away? So where do we go from here? This book, I like this book. It's telling somebody before service because it does not pick a side, it creates a side. I think I already said that tonight. All right, your amen moratorium is over. You're like, whew, everybody's like, I can't breathe. We'd like us some participatory listening here at the City Life Church. There you go. There's Cortez. I learned a phrase in this book that I wasn't familiar with. I also like books that teach me vocabulary. There's a law professor by the name of John Inazu. I don't know if I'm saying his name right has written about what he calls a confident pluralism, which he explains this way. The civic practices of confident pluralism build upon three aspirations, tolerance, humility, and patience. It it might seem less obvious that we would pursue tolerance, humility, and patience patience in light of our firmly held convictions. But it is, in fact, it is, in fact, the confidence in our own views in the midst of deep differences that allows us to engage charitably with others rather than lashing out at others or remaining in our own echo chambers we can pursue dialogue and coexistence even when and perhaps especially when we believe that our views are in fact better ones confident pluralism confident pluralism that's one of the great things about our nation And I believe not only is it true for our nation, I believe it must be true for our church if we are to continue to pursue oneness and unity together. Oneness and unity, what we're talking about, that believes in a confident pluralism is uncomfortable because people are not used to finding that in churches. They're just not. Or if you're used to finding it in the pew, you're not used to finding it in the pulpit. You're certainly not used to finding it on the staff. You're certainly not used to finding it amongst the elders and the leaders but you're going to find it here. Are there boundaries? You better believe that there are. You better believe it. We will never negotiate biblical morality or what we believe to be orthodox doctrinal positions. But we will never reach those who are far from Christ if we aren't willing to listen to their beliefs and to their point of view. And we will never sharpen one another the way that we need to be sharpened. Our blind spots will never be exposed unless someone presses against us. If we aren't willing to walk in disagreement instead of standing in conflict. This book talks about a confident pluralism. I believe this is a key for us as a church as we move forward together. But it also talks about the great commandment. Love is substantive and active. Loving our neighbors is not the same as simply not hating them. Well, let me say that again. Loving our neighbor is not the same as simply not hating them. In the biblical sense, love is not a lack of hate or anything else. Love has form and content as described in Scripture, and it compels us to act. 1 Corinthians 13, also, also Matthew 5, 43-47, which we understand. The Sermon on the Mount, how powerful that text is for us. 5, 6, and 7 in Matthew Jumping down a few sentences, it says, Loving our neighbors involves actively seeking their well-being. And it goes on to read James 2, 15 to 17. The confident pluralism, the great commandment, these are keys for us. Acts 15, 8 through 9 is going to come up on the screen. God knows people's hearts. And he confirmed that he accepts Gentiles by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he cleansed their hearts through faith. Gentiles is what I like to call a fill-in-the-blank text, because you can put a whole lot of words in there that separate us, that make us different from one another. The question that we've got to start asking ourselves is not, who do they vote for? Not what party do they lean towards, not what neighborhood do they live live in, not what's the color of their skin or their socioeconomic class. The most important question is, have they made a vow of devotion to Christ? Because if they have, God has accepted them and given them his Holy Spirit. And one of the things that the Holy Spirit has said to me over the last few months, he has said to me specifically, who are you, Fred? Fred? Who are you to not work with someone that I've already accepted? Who who are you to not be in relationship with someone who the Father has given me to because of the death of Jesus Christ? Who, Who are you? Who are you? Who am I to not want to be in a church with someone that God has accepted just because, just because? Our minds are in different places. But that doesn't mean our hearts have to be. I'm going to close in just a minute. You're like, whoo! But I want to thank Sharon for your vulnerability last week. Because it inspired me to move out of my transparency and into my vulnerability and I hope I never leave it ever again. Stand with me. I'm going to leave you with these verses, and then I have an invitation that I'm going to give, which I said was going to come. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. Faith shows the reality of what we hope for. It is the evidence of things that we cannot see And listen to what it says. Through their faith, the people in days of old earned a good reputation. That's part of my dream for this church. That when we're dead and gone and those days are coming for us all, and people like myself, we're closer to it than we used to be. Will this church be known throughout history as a place where there were a people of a reputation? who had the faith to believe for the impossible. Because I want that kind of reputation for me and my wife and my children and everybody in this room that I love. Everybody that's watching from at home right now on YouTube and Facebook Live, our live stream. Will you be a person of good reputation at the end of your days because you dared to believe in the impossible? Hebrews 13, 21 reads this way, May he equip you with all that you need for doing his will. And may he produce in you through the power of Jesus Christ every good thing that is pleasing to him. All glory forever and ever. Amen. Because the only way that we're ever going to believe for the impossible, the only way that we're ever going to be a people of that reputation, the only way that we're ever going to be a people that can be an answer to Jesus' prayer. As if Hebrews 13, 21 just doesn't become a blessing for us, but it becomes a way of life, that we will align with his will above our own always. And there we, were, we are willing to say what is missing in us, that is absent, that can only be birthed in us by the power of Christ, and always and forever for his glory. So I'm asking tonight, every one of you who call City Life Church your home and for some who have wondered whether or not it should be, will you join me in this fight for unity? Will you join me in this fight for oneness? Because it is not a time to pull back. It's a time to press in. Father, I believe with all of my heart that you planted this church 15 years ago. You planted this church 15 years ago. But I got a feeling. I've got a feeling that tonight might be the night that you birthed this church in your kingdom and in our hearts. We, we, we don't want to be given to this mission of building the church that you envision to love the world that you died to save because we're trying to occupy ourselves with Christian things. We want to be given to your purposes. We want to pour out our lives for eternal things. May it be that this Saturday in November of 2020 that City Life Church was born afresh and born anew. Bind our hearts together even when our minds can't find their way forward in the darkness of disagreement. May we be tethered together at the very seat of our soul in Jesus' name and everybody sit together Amen Happy Thanksgiving we'll see you next week